I'm Bonnie Harrison and this is The Detail's Long Read. This week, a story from a back issue of New Zealand Geographic magazine called The Preppers Next Door. It's written by Tom Doig from the December 2022 issue with pictures by Cameron James McLaren. You can read the full version at nzgeo.com. When Tom Doig started reading about doomsday preppers and survivalist subcultures, his first question was, what if they're crazy? His second question was, what if they're right? This is an excerpt of The Preppers Next Door. One otherwise ordinary morning in the early 1990s, Paul Flint woke up and hauled himself out of bed. He put on his suit, his tie, his polished black shoes, then trudged outside and fired up his little Honda Prelude. Paul lived in the struggling South Auckland suburb of Otahuhu and worked at a real estate agency five minutes' drive away. He was 25. He'd been having a rough time. He and his girlfriend of 10 years had just broken up and he hadn't made a property sale in six months. When Paul reached the end of his street that morning, instead of turning left, like he always did, he turned right. Two hours later, I was in the Kauairanga Valley, he recalls, chuckling down a patchy phone line. I hadn't been there since I was a kid. I got so upset and fed up with the world, I was like, I need to get home. And it wasn't Thames, where I was born, that felt like home. It was the bush. I spent three days just crashing in my car at one of the campgrounds. I found a sense of peace as soon as I got into the trees. I drank out of the streams to keep my fluids up and smoked my cigarettes. It was sunny, so I ended up walking around topless in my suit pants with my pocket knife. I'd walk along a path, looking for areas where I could wander off track. I could have easily gotten lost. I was very unprepared. I didn't eat for three days. That's how stressed out I'd been. And that's when I clicked. It would be good to have some stuff in my boot, some food and utensils and stuff, in case this happened again. For Paul, this was the beginning of a lifelong journey into the ways and the contradictions of the prepper. It was also the end of his career in real estate. When he got back to Otahuhu, he quit on the spot. Three decades later, Paul is living in Manurewa and working as a sign writer and vehicle wrap installer. He had told me over the phone that he always kept his supplies packed in his garage and that he could load his van in 30 minutes tops. Army surplus rucksacks packed with essentials, plastic tubs full of long-life food, bows and arrows, abseiling equipment, and even four kayaks in case the roads out of Auckland are closed, blocked, slow... Or dangerous. The extra spaces in the kayaks are for his children, a daughter, Nikita, in her teens, and a son, Ryan, in his early 20s. When Paul greets me at his front door, he looks pretty much how I expect a prepper to look. Big arms bulging out of his singlet, black baseball cap topped with a pair of mirrored wraparound sunnies squeezed onto his head, haunted eyes above a grizzled grey beard. In his garage, there's an Old West saloon minibar, and behind it, 
a swathe of olive green camo netting. In the centre of the netting, in pride of place, is a vintage replica Colt 45 rifle. Paul takes the gun off its rack and hands it to me, assuring me that while it fires blanks, it still weighs the same as the real thing. But this is where the similarity with characters from television shows such as Doomsday Preppers ends. Unlike the North American survivalists who feature prominently in news stories, Paul has no interest in fighting off an army of zombies or an army of anyone. I'm not cocky enough to think I'll smash anybody, he tells me. That's something they taught me in karate. Don't underestimate your opponent. Even the meekest-looking guy, you don't know where he's come from or what training he's had. If and when the SHTF, which is prepper parlance for shit hits the fan, Paul's plan is to gather his kids and make a run for it. In other words, to bug out. Like many survivalists, Paul has a keen sense of the fragility of the current social order. As a teenager, he was in central Auckland in 1984 when crowds rioted in Queen Street after a DD smash concert. Dickheads were smashing windows, people were flipping cars over and setting them on fire. It made me realise what a mob mentality could do, he says. This is what people are capable of. After the 2011 Christchurch earthquake, Paul became increasingly worried about what might happen to Auckland if a similar disaster hit there. He was, and is, hyper-aware of the fact that New Zealand's largest city was built around, and literally on, 53 dormant volcanoes, which could make a mess of the place in a matter of seconds. Tsunamis, too, could wreak untold havoc. When Paul imagines a serious natural disaster scenario, he imagines things getting very ugly very quickly. People are going to be out for themselves, he tells me. That's human nature. When survival mode comes on, there are no limits a human can't go to. And that includes killing, and even eating, other humans. If you have to survive, you have to survive. He cites the example of aeroplane crash survivors who ate their dead companions rather than starve. It calls to mind a saying that preppers are fond of, only nine meals stand between civilization and anarchy. Paul's bug-out plan is to head at top speed for one of four secret locations in the dense bush of the Kauairanga Valley. There, he'll hunt possums. Not with a gun, either. I don't believe in using rifles, he says. You're going to run out of ammunition. Bullets aren't light. You can't make bullets. You can't retrieve a bullet. Instead, he's been practising hunting with his recurve bow and arrow and reckons he's a pretty good shot and a pretty good cook. Possums are easy, he says. They just sit there. They even make a noise to let you know they're there. It's like cooking rabbit. He pauses. Tastes different to what you get from the supermarket, obviously. In 2013, industrial designer Richard Hovey and his then-wife, who we are calling Anne, bought a piece of land on the Kāpiti coast, on a little ridge just back from the Waikanae River and the beach, sitting a few metres above the historical flood zones. There was no house there, just a sloping, grassy lawn. 
and they spent the summer holidays camping out in a tent with their two young kids. They built a little shed as a temporary dwelling and looked forward to laying in a little garden and designing a more substantial family home. But things didn't work out as they planned. Every summer, it was hotter and drier. We'd spend more and more time on the edge of the river to cool down, says Richard. Sometimes we'd even eat dinner just sitting in the river. The summer of 2018 was particularly brutal. The native trees Richard had planted were wilting and dying, no matter how much he watered them. Meanwhile, the Waikanae River filled with algae. There were three 1 in 50 year floods, then a 1 in 100 year flood. According to Richard, Anne became really freaked out about climate change from a sea level rise perspective. Richard had already been freaking out about climate change for years. Even though the block was 13 metres above sea level, scientists predicted higher and higher storm surges, maybe not enough to threaten their property, but enough to knock out the access road. Richard and Anne started wondering if their next house could be designed to sit on piles in case they wanted, or needed, to move it in the future. Richard and Anne separated in 2019. They had been together for 25 years. Their anxiety over climate change wasn't the cause of their divorce, but it was in the mix. They had to sell the Waikanae River property. Richard went back one last time to get it ready for the sale. While he was there, he had a full-blown panic attack. The river had warning signs on it. No swimming, no dogs. The water was rank with algae. I was up there by myself and the totality of everything hit me. The grass was brown and crunchy and dying. The trees we had planted were browning. And I saw this future ahead of me with the children, where every year it was just browner and crunchier. It wasn't a full apocalypse, but it was a steadily declining future for them, a future with less choices and more hardship. By early 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit Aotearoa, Richard was ready for it. Following his dystopian experiences with the Waikanae River section, he had no intention of bugging out. Instead, Richard was all about bugging in in his suburban house and weathering any kind of societal collapse from the living room. He had months' worth of canned food, rice and flour on hand. And toilet paper. And some other stuff. I'm standing in my workroom office, he says, chuckling, and by the door there's a plastic tub which has got a bunch of, we'll just say, weapons in it. There are baseball bats, a Viking-style axe, two sizes of wooden medieval swords and quarterstaffs, some wooden katanas, a machete, a couple of fencing foils. Basically, that's all for the kids to play with, but also what I train with. The kids and I do what we just call rough and tumble, which is basically martial arts training, but without getting into it in a serious way. I ask him about guns. Richard, like Paul Flint, isn't a fan. My theory on guns, at least in New Zealand, is yes, there will be people with thousands of rounds, and I don't plan to cross paths with them. They're going to head to the hills, or they'll be in their bunkers. 
Meanwhile, a lot of people will realise that guns are quite heavy and not very versatile. As a product designer, my personal thing is more about multi-use. I reckon a good stick is the thing. You can throw it, you can drop it on someone, it's multi-purpose, it's cheap, it's cheerful, everyone can have one. A community armed with quarterstaffs and machetes is probably as good as it gets. This wasn't a joke, at least not entirely. Richard lives on a little street that snakes around the side of a steep hill in a middle-class Wellington suburb. But this street also happens to be the home of a guy who knows Escrima, Filipino-style stick-fighting. A guy who does archery, which Richard also does, and a tattooed, Harley-riding, Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert. So if the proverbial shit really does hit the fan, which Richard fully expects to happen, he and his neighbours are in a surprisingly good position to assemble a paramilitary community defence cell. Richard's worst-case bet against the future is that he, his two kids, and his new girlfriend, Trish, will have to survive up to 12 months of increasingly dire social collapse, rioting, illness, starvation, mass suicide, and killing sprees. He's building up his stash of food and working on his backyard garden and his supply of seeds. While he's determined to keep his kids safe, he doesn't want a siege mentality to override the need for community. I don't want to be fighting with neighbours we've known for years over a can of beans, he says. If his family and neighbours can make it through, they'll emerge into a strange new world where they'll have to turn soccer fields into garden beds and be prepared to trade batteries and antibiotics with the other hardy survivors. Before Tewehi Ratana of Te Arawa, Ngati Rangiwewehi, Ngarauru and Ngati Raukawa was a prepper, he was a climate activist. Before he was a climate activist, he was an animal rights activist. And before he was an animal rights activist, he was a dairy farmer. Six years ago, he was getting up at 5am to milk cows. He didn't worry about the apocalypse at all. Now, he feels like it's just around the corner, if it hasn't already begun. I meet Tewehi in downtown Nelson on a quiet Monday afternoon. He looks younger than his 27 years. Born and raised in Rotorua in the 1990s, he had a standard Kiwi childhood. Batch on Lake Taupo, trips to Maketu Beach, plenty of surf casting, fire building and sleeping out under the stars. After leaving school and then dropping out of a welding course at Unitech, he and his partner, Hannah Kramer, ended up moving back in with Tewehi's parents. After a couple of aimless months, Tewehi was offered work on an iwi-owned farm near Taupo, helping out a share milker with a herd of 800 cows. He liked it. Most of all, Tewehi liked the cows, which he saw as the most incredible creatures in the world. Watching the documentary Cowspiracy in August 2016 was a big turning point. It just made logical sense, he says. Too many cows equals polluted rivers. Too many cows equals greenhouse gas. After that, we started asking questions like, how can we farm in a way that's more sustainable? 
We did some research into different kinds of feeds, but we realised we were kidding ourselves. We were just greenwashing it. Six months later, Tewehi and Hannah stopped farming and moved with their two young kids to Motueka, where Tewehi got a job as a drain layer. Six months after that, they became involved in animal rights protests. I'm an animal liberationist well before I'm a climate activist, he says, laughing. Climate change got in the way. Tewehi was at work when he heard a 20-second news item about Extinction Rebellion protesters who had shut down Waterloo Bridge in central London. That night, he went home and jumped on YouTube. I ended up watching videos for about three hours, and that was it. I was hooked. Tewehi and Hannah got involved in Extinction Rebellion Aotearoa, and within a few months, they were travelling to Ōtautahi Christchurch to take part in a blockade preventing a coal train from delivering its cargo to Littleton Harbour, from where the coal would be shipped to China. Since then, he's been involved in multiple protests and actions. He has glued himself to the steps of the beehive while calling for urgent climate action, and spent three nights up a tree on Motueka's main street, trying to save the tree from being cut down. He puts an immense amount of effort and energy into Extinction Rebellion meetings and actions, and feels like he's making a positive difference in the world, or at least trying to, before it's too late. Me and Hannah both agreed, within five years, we're going to know whether or not we're going to be able to do this. That's the kaupapa we set ourselves. By do this, tewehi means stopping, or even just slowing down, climate breakdown. They've given themselves until 2024. If things haven't noticeably improved by then, they're going to shift into full prepper mode. When is the collapse going to begin? I ask him. He laughs. It's already begun, man. I think COVID showed us how fragile everything is. And this is from just one event. Sure, it's a big one, but it's just one thing. In five years' time, we could be hit by big events every couple of months, or at the same time. The thing is, with an unstable climate, nowhere is going to be safe. Like, how do you prepare veggie gardens when at any moment they could be destroyed? And there goes your whole food source. On Boxing Day in December 2020, a hailstorm ruined his garden. The hailstones were the size of marbles. It makes me think, how can you rationalise setting up in one place, deciding this is going to be our place? You can't. Tewehi doesn't think bunkers are the way to go either. That whole digging yourself into the earth thing, burying yourself in a hole, what kind of life is that, he says. Perhaps more critically, he points out that even if you were to spend a million dollars or more on a bunker, hoping to hide out for a few years, by the time you find out whether or not the air ventilation and everything else works properly, it'll be too late. And the bunker salespeople won't be around to take your complaints. The stories from Paul, Richard and Tewehi three preppers next door, are in no way illustrative of a typical or classic type of Kiwi prepper, because no such single type exists. They are, however, 
intended as a counter to the lurid and often embarrassing stereotypes of white trash US preppers that have dominated global media coverage of this topic, and as an antidote to that other grand cliché of prepping in New Zealand. The Silicon Valley tech bro with the extravagant property in the hills outside Wanaka, or Masterton, or Greymouth, or Raglan. There are also, of course, plenty of Kiwi women who prep, like Hannah and Nina. They've been less keen overall to speak about their prepping on the record, and I respect that. Plus, there are plenty of New Zealanders who do see guns and ammunition as an essential part of their prepping. There are Christian preppers in New Zealand, and extremely wealthy preppers, and anti-vax preppers, and any number of miscellaneous conspiracy theory preppers with grave concerns about electromagnetic pulse attacks, government brainwashing, the Earth's magnetic poles suddenly reversing. The list really does go on. But those people are all too easy to dismiss. And in doing so, we might miss something important that's going on right now, just over our back fences. For every US multimillionaire with a private jet on standby, for every misanthrope with an automatic rifle and the safety off, there are literally thousands of middle and working class preppers doing their unremarkable thing in the unremarkable suburbs and towns of Aotearoa. Is it time for you to join them? That's not for me to say, but you can also get involved in local politics and national politics and activism to try and make a positive change while there's still time, if you think there is still time. You can get involved in your local community, connect with your neighbours. These things aren't mutually exclusive, as these stories hopefully show. That was The Preppers Next Door by Tom Doig from New Zealand Geographic. The detail's long read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next week with another long read. Ka kite anō. 